invited before. My name's Archie. Uh, along with Jude, we lead the Inverurie site of Catalyst Vineyard. Um, got a topical question for you. A topical question. I like this one. Um, Harry and Megan. All right. <laughs> um, the deal that they've been given, are you in agreement with it? Do you think they should or shouldn't have uh, or should be entitled to their royal titles, given that they've chosen to depart from the establishment that made it possible to have such things? You know, if, well, unless you've been living on Mars, you know I'm talking about Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, how they've decided to step back from being senior royals and want to live, well, supposedly a peaceful life. <laughs> And the deal that was forged with the Queen was said, well, you can have that, but you can't have that. And according to which papers you read, well, they might be a little disgruntled by that. I don't know. But anyway, you might wonder, well, what is that on earth that got to do with the passage that we're looking at this morning? Well, I did see an analogy in their situation as to the conditions or the preconditions of what it is to be a member of the royal family and some of the conditions or preconditions of what it is to be a member of God's family. Um, we're picking up the series that we've been doing and entitled The Cost. It's, we're reading through Matthew's Gospel, and we are specifically looking at the difficult teachings of Jesus. And this morning's one is a heavyweight one. <laughs> so what does it mean? What are the conditions? What, what is the expectation? What is it to be a part of God's kingdom, a follower of Jesus, a child of God? What is God looking for from you? Well, let's turn to Matthew chapter 18, and we're going to be reading verses 21 to 35. It will come up on screen, ta-da. We also have Bibles at the front. If you'd like a Bible and you would like one, please put your hand up. And Rob, Dave, David. We're full of servants in this church. It's wonderful. Uh, we'll come and bring you one. So, so Matthew chapter 18, reading verses 21 to 35. It reads, Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times, or 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt, and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servants fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me, and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison 
until they could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owned. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Amen. It's, um, it's funny, isn't it? It was rather amazing when we pause for a moment and reflect on any given passage. And if we're honest, we see an awful lot of ourselves in the passage, sometimes perhaps more than we would like to at times. I'm referring to Peter in the first instance. We don't know particularly what gave rise to this question from Peter regarding uh, forgiveness. Maybe he'd had a fallout with Andrew. <laughs> uh, it does happen between brothers, doesn't it? And sisters and siblings very easily. <laughs> we don't know. But the first thing I noticed, that the question was directed to the conduct of his brother or his sister. Never himself, was it? It'd be funny, but, well, it's funny, but it's also so true. You know, often we find, or we try looking for an easy answer to uh, some moral dilemma, but we always put the question regarding somebody else's behavior. You know, I've got a question regarding somebody I know. Uh, My brother, my sister, my friend, the conduct is going to be a cause to question that. Really? (laughs) What about your own, first of all? You know, in Peter asking this question, I'm sure it was genuine, but there's almost an element of boast. Peter would have been aware that there was an answer to this question. The scribes had an answer, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law already had an answer to this question, and the answer was three Peter, by offering seven, thinks he's only a winner here. <laughs> Look at me, Lord. <laughs> I'm extending it. And I something. In his own eyes, he thought he was being very gracious. And in this, there should be a lesson for us as well, not to be careful, not to cap the grace of God. He thinks he's making a generous offer. But again, we need to be careful that we are not limiting the grace of God according to what is comfortable just for us. God's grace will always extend and exceed our own measure. I wonder, do you recognize the tendency in yourselves sometimes, and I know it in myself, to limit the grace of God? Do you find there are some things that you say you're willing to forgive thinking that it's some great act of grace on your part, maybe on a par with God himself. <laughs> but what you really is, what the reality is, you're simply assenting to something that you think is, well, that's, yeah, I agree with that in principle, until it actually happens to you. <laughs> C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, everyone says forgiveness 
is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. A second point is that we need to recognize our own brokenness. We need to be honest with ourselves. Otherwise, we will never see the need for change. Our will and our desire to become more Christ-like. We will be content to remain as we are, and we will ourselves will ultimately suffer because of it. Can we outdo God? No, we can't. But only by God's grace and by his spirit at work in us can we ultimately find the ability to forgive as he forgave us. So let's be resolved to take God seriously and do as he asks of us. Jesus' reply to Peter was 70 times 7 or 77 times 7. It sounds even then he's still given a definitive answer or a rather definitive number, whether it be 490 or 77. Is that what you were looking for, Peter? A fixed number? Keep a record if you can. Can you keep counting to 490 every time somebody makes a, a, an offense against you? If he steps a foot wrong after the 490th or the 77th, then that's it. He's finished. <laughs> or she's finished. You can write them off. You can be done with them. We know just from the passage itself, it's a ridiculous number Jesus is putting forward. If you're forgiven, it's, uh, it doesn't make sense. You can't keep a record of it. <laughs> Jesus is using a literary device, a euphemism. He's trying to install, it's an ongoing attitude of forgiveness without end. Keep forgiving, period. But depending on what side of forgiveness we find ourselves standing on at times, our appreciation of that statement will vary. (laughs) You know, in this passage, it's easy to recognize who the villain is. And we find it easy to call him and to identify him as the villain, the ungrateful servant. And there's almost like this sense of justice in us that kind of goes, yeah. <laughs> when we see him get his comeuppance, isn't the end, isn't it? Quite right. I wouldn't be like that, though. That wouldn't be me. <laughs> well, I think I can assure you, I might be wrong, but I have a strong suspicion it will be you if it hasn't been already at some point in your life. You see, the problem is each of us have our own sense of justice, of vanity, of ego, of pride. And where one person can be the epitome of grace in one situation, they can be the complete opposite in another. And why is that? It's because the human heart is corrupt in itself. You know, we can harbor bitterness, resentment, unforgiveness when no one else sees it, but the Lord sees it. And it is in this secret place of the heart that forgiveness is ultimately secured. And the thing is, in this passage, it's the grace that was extended to this ungrateful servant is sometimes so easily missed. It's more than just the cancellation of his debt. What we're seeing here is a revelation of the king's grace towards him. It was a tangible thing. It should have been a life-transformed form thing that should have gone on from the the, the throne room itself. 
and been replicated again and again and again wherever this servant went. It was meant to bring forth a transformation in the heart of the servant too. You know, what the king really wanted to see was see this, this, this grace, this kindness being replicated. Not just here in the throne room where he was speaking with the servant, but he wanted to see it replicated in that servant himself. Wherever he went, he wanted to see it echo again and again and again. There really was meant to be a twofold transformation in this act of kindness. It's certainly a transformation of the man's circumstances, but also a transformation of the man's heart. The third point is if we are serious about embracing forgiveness, God's forgiveness, then inevitably we're embracing transformation of ourselves as well. As a picture up on screen, I used to think that diamonds and coal were the same thing to a degree. You often see memes and things like that where a coal is just a diamond in the making and things like that, but the truth is they're quite different, which is obvious when you see them. But it's the conditions of the transformation that really sets them apart. Certainly both of them are made from carbon, but coal, it's an impure carbon. It's full of impurities and other elements. And it's also formed in relatively shallow conditions in the earth. Whereas diamonds, on the other hand, are pure carbon. There's, there's very little impurity in it. And it's formed deep, deep in the earth. And exposed to extreme temperatures and pressure. And that's what brings the transformation. So to sum it up, you could say that one is a product of a superficial... <laughs> shallow experience, whilst the other has been completely transformed at the deepest level. And that, which should be, is the measure and the true appreciation of the grace of God at work in us. Some people take it as a shallow, superficial experience, whereas others who have really experienced and understood the wonder have been transformed by it and are continually being transformed to have a heart after God's own. So it raises a question, what is the state of your heart then? Is it a lump of coal, or is it a diamond, or maybe at least a diamond in the making? You see, the ungrateful servant, even in his unrepentant state, has something to teach us, and we do well to consider it. Notice his appeal to the king. He's self-confident, or perhaps more self-deluded, that he can pay the money back. It's an astronomical sum of money. It's a lifetime's worth. I think in today's market, they were talking like, like 10 billion. <laughs> and despite the ridiculous nature of the sum, he still has this sense that he can stave off the king's retribution if he can spin out a convincing enough story. But he doesn't realize that the king actually has something else in mind. He does want to show compassion to this man. He wants to bring a transformation to his life. Do you remember when Jesus met Zacchaeus? Jesus went there with deliberate intent, unbeknown to Zacchaeus himself. 
But it wasn't to go and argue with Zacchaeus or to try and convince him that he'd been a bad Jew by stealing from his fellow Jews. It was simply exposure to the grace of Jesus was enough for Zacchaeus himself to be transformed. He saw a transformation of his conscience and a work of the Spirit in him that convinced him himself of his wrong and his desire to take the initiative and do something different, be different. Similar again, the, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, the two, two very different characters standing in the temple one beats his chest and moans because of his miserable condition. He knows he's a failure. He knows he's a sinner. He knows he's done wrong. The other one is full of self-righteousness and exalts himself above the tax collector. But it was only one of them who left the temple righteous before God. And it was a tax collector. He rightly saw himself before God. He saw himself without pretense. He understood the holiness of God and how far removed he was from it. He had no plan. He had no trump card hung up his sleeve. He didn't put himself on a par with God. He recognized his own need for forgiveness, his wrongfulness, his utter hopelessness before a holy and a righteous God. And that's funny enough, that's the conditions where diamonds are formed. The unforgiving servant was oblivious to the weight and the dishonor of his crimes. His only remorse that had been found out. And he tries to blag his way out of it. Even at this gift, this precious gift that had been given to him, he squanders it. It was a means to an end for him, a short-lived experience. It got him out of a fix, but it was temporal. It was a fluke. It was a moment of good fortune. One in a million opportunity to get off scot-free. There was no appreciation for the dishonoring towards the king. There was no appreciation of the loss of the king's estate. There was no sense of, I have offended you. So when the perfect opportunity comes along to reflect, what should have been obvious to the reader is trodden underfoot by him. We're shocked, aren't we? And we really are, as the readers and the people who are listening to Jesus then, were shocked and angered by this servant's reaction. But if we're shocked at him, why then are we not so shocked by our own conduct at times, when we who claim to be the children of God do the very same thing? You know, the offensive act by the ungrateful servant is worse than the first. This is a direct ridicule of the king's grace towards him. And we don't have to wait too long or pause too long or think too long and think, have I ever done the same? Yes, I have. Or certainly I'm maybe in danger of committing the same offense. Part of our problem is that unforgiveness is and can be and can become an idol to us. That might sound like a very weighty thing to say. You might not think that you have, but if you're holding a grudge or withholding forgiveness from someone, that's exactly what you were doing. You're standing in direct opposition to what God has said and saying, well, my offense, Lord, my embarrassment, 
the injustice that I have suffered, my disappointment, my frustration is something and somehow is far greater and weightier than what happened to Jesus himself. It's a direct act of defacing the grace that was extended to you. You claim that we have pledged ourselves to Christ, the Son of God who by his own grace gave himself up for us. Did it cost him anything? Of course it did. Him and the Father. We don't know the mystery and the grief that was in the cross. But believe me, it was there. And we're quick to say, I believe it, I receive it. But where is the evidence of it? Where is that inward transformation? Has it occurred? Is it occurring? You see, grace isn't a temporal one-off experience. Uh, It happened then and, and that was it. It's meant to be a continual grace, an unmeasured forgiveness. It should be an intrinsic element of our new identity in Christ. So again, I throw it out to you again. Where is your heart this morning? Is it made of coal or is it the stuff of diamonds? You know, by saying these things, I'm not belittling the the, the things that some of us have suffered in life or may yet suffer in life. In fact, I'm appealing to it. Because that is the very place where diamonds again are formed. extreme pressure. Terrible hurt, betrayal, disappointment, rejection, injustice, harm of body, mind, and soul. And believe me, Jesus suffered like no one else. And in the last few hours before he breathed his last, his words were, Father, forgive them. And you can't get away with saying, but that was Jesus. I'm just me. Well, the thing is, If you're a child of God, you're not just you. You have the Spirit of God inside you. His desire and purpose is to conform you to the likeness and the image of the Son himself. I want to relate to you the the story. Some of you, it's a very famous story. You probably may have read it before. It's of Corrie Ten Boom. She was a Dutch Christian woman living during the, the Second World War. Herself, along with her family, harbored Dutch Jews during the war. And they were caught by the the Nazi regime. Corrie and her sister Betsy were sent to the Ravensburg concentration camp, where Corrie's sister Betsy lost her life, as you can imagine, to the cruel and torturous conditions and the regime that oversaw it. After the, the war, Corrie went on to travel the globe, preaching the gospel, and particularly the the necessity for forgiveness. And I want to relate an incident from those days. Corrie herself was put to the test in 1947 while speaking in a Munich church. At the close of the service, a balding man in a grey overcoat stepped forward to greet her. Corrie froze. She knew this man well. He'd been one of the most vicious guards at Ravensbrück one who had mocked the women prisoners as they showered. And it came back with a rush, she wrote. A huge room with the harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. 
and now he was pushing his hand out to shake hers and saying, a fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take the hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him. I was face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. He was saying, I was a guard there, but since that time, he went on, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I, whose sins had again and again to be forgiven, I could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply by the asking? The soldiers stood there expectantly, waiting for Corey to shake his hand. She wrestled with the most difficult thing I've ever had to do, for I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. Standing there before the former SS man, Corey remembered that forgiveness is an act of the will, not an emotion. Jesus, help me, she prayed. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. Corey thrust out her hand. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guards and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intently as I did then, but even so, I realized it was not my love. I had tried. I did not have the power. It was the power of the Holy Spirit. That is but one story of divine forgiveness being rightly extended, expanded beyond the initial recipient. You know, you and I have been to that reservoir before and we've drank from it again and again. And there's almost that a mechanical nature to it. As we take from it, it then somehow it overspells. It's almost like a placement. As you get into a bath, you displace water. <laughs> As you sit in one end of the sea so that the other end rises up. <laughs> if you pull in one end of the pool, you raise up the other end. That is the nature of God's grace and forgiveness. As we genuinely draw upon it, we then affect the other end of it, and it will affect someone else as well. In one sense, what I'm saying, it's inevitable that you will forgive as you draw genuinely on the grace and the forgiveness of God. So there will be difficult circumstances, difficult situations. There is, seems impossible. But God doesn't ask us to, to do anything that we're incapable of doing by his grace. So I want to exalt you this morning, encourage you this morning. 
uh, maybe currently with the situations or circumstances you find you're in, and you're making a, a, an idol out of unforgiveness, I'd say smash it, get rid of it, and turn towards the true and living God, who will enable you to bring reconciliation, at least for your part, into your circumstances. And who knows, by God's grace, somebody else's life might be transformed as well. Let's stand.